Chapter 56 of Is He Popenjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Smallwood. Is He Popenjoy? by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 56. Sir Henry said it was the only thing. The dinner at the deanery went off without much excitement. Captain de Baron would, of course, have preferred that Lord George should have remained at Manor Cross, but under no circumstances could he have had much more to say to the lady. They understood each other now. He was quite certain that any evil thing spoken of her had been sheer slander, and yet he had managed to tell her everything of himself without subjecting himself to her undying anger. When she left the drawing-room, the conversation turned again upon the great Popenjoy question, and from certain words which fell from the Dean, Jack was enabled to surmise that Lord George had reason to hope that an heir might be born to him. "'He does not look as though he would live long himself,' said the Dean, speaking of the Marquis. "'I trust he may with all my heart,' said Lord George. "'That's another question,' replied the Dean. I only say that he doesn't look like it. Lord George went away early, and Jack de Baron thought it prudent to retire at the same time. So you are going tomorrow, dear, said the Dean. Yes, papa, is it not best? Oh, yes. Nothing could be worse than a prolonged separation. He means to be honest and good. He is honest and good, papa. You have had your triumph. I did not want to triumph, not at least over him. After what had occurred, it was necessary that you should have your own way in coming here, otherwise he would have triumphed. He would have taken you away, and you and I would have been separated. Of course, you are bound to obey him, but there must be limits. He would have taken you away as though in disgrace, and that I could not stand. There will be an end of that now. God knows when I shall see you again, Mary. Why not, Papa? Because he has not got over his feeling against me. I don't think he ever gets over any feeling. Having no home of his own, why does he not bring you here? I don't think he likes the idea of being a burden to you. Exactly. He has not cordiality enough to feel that when two men are in a boat together, as he and I are because of you, all that feeling should go to the wind. He ought to be no more ashamed to sit at my table and drink of my cup than you are. If it were all well between us, and he had the property, should I scruple to go and stay at Manor Cross? You would still have your own house to go back to. So will he, after a while. But it can't be altered, dear, and God forbid that I should set you against him. He is not a rake nor a spendthrift, nor will he run after other women. Mary thought of Mrs. Houghton but she held her tongue. He is not a bad man, and I think he loves you. I'm sure he does. But I can't help feeling sad at parting with you. I suppose I shall at any rate be able to see you up in town next season. Dean, as he said this, was almost weeping. Mary, when she was alone in her room, of course thought much of Captain de Baron and his story. It was a pity, a thousand pities, that it should be so. It was to be regretted, much regretted, 
that he had been induced to tell his story. She was angry with herself because she had been indiscreet, and she was still angry, a little angry, with him, because he had yielded to the temptation. But there had been something sweet in it. She was sorry, grieved in her heart of hearts that he should love her. She had never striven to gain his love. She had never even thought of it. It ought not to have been so. She should have thought of it. She should not have shown herself to be so pleased with his society. But yet, yet it was sweet. Then there came upon her some memory of her old dreams, before she had been engaged to Lord George. She knew how vain had been those dreams, because now she loved Lord George with her whole heart. But yet she remembered them, and felt as though they had come true with a dreamy half-truth, and she brought to mind all those flattering words with which he had spoken her praises, how he had told her that she was an angel, too good and pure to be supposed capable of evil, how he had said that in his castles in the air he would still think of her as his wife. Surely a man may build what castles in the air he pleases, if he will only hold his tongue. She was quite sure that she did not love him, but she was sure also that his was the proper way of making love. And then she thought of Gus Mildmay. Could she not in pure charity do a good turn to that poor girl? Might she not tell Captain Barron that it was his duty to marry her? And if he felt it to be his duty, would he not do so? It may be doubted whether, in these moments, she did not think much better of Captain de Baron than that gentleman deserved. On the next day, the Manor Cross carriage came over for her. The Dean had offered to send her. Lord George had explained that his mother was anxious that the carriage should come. There would be a cart for the luggage. As to Lady George herself, there was a general feeling at Manor Cross that in the present circumstances the family carriage should bring her home. But it came empty. God bless you, dearest, said the dean as he put her into the vehicle. Goodbye, papa. I suppose you can come over and see me. I don't know that I can. I saw none of the ladies when I was there yesterday. I don't care a bit for the ladies. Where I go, papa, you can come. Of course, George will see you, and you could ask for me. The dean smiled and kissed her again. And then she was gone. She hardly knew what grand things were in store for her. She was still rebelling in her heart against skirts and petticoats and resolving that she would not go to church twice on Sundays unless she liked it when the carriage drove up to the door. They were all in the hall except the Marchioness. We wouldn't go in, said Lady Amelia, because we didn't like to fill the carriage. And George wanted us to send it early, said Lady Sarah, before we had done our work. They all kissed her affectionately and then she was again in her husband's arms. Mrs. Toff curtsied to her most respectfully. Mary observed the curtsy and reminded herself at the moment that Mrs. Toff had never curtsied to her before. Even the tall footman in knee-breeches stood back with a demeanour which had hitherto been vouchsafed only to the real ladies of the family. Who could tell how soon that wicked Marquis would die, and then, then, how great would not be the glory of the dean's daughter. 
"'Perhaps you won't mind coming up to Mamma as soon as you've got your hat off,' said Lady Susanna. "Mamma is so anxious to see you.' Mary's hat was immediately off, and she declared herself ready to go to the Marchioness. "'Mamma has had a great deal to trouble her since you were here,' said Lady Susanna, as she led the way upstairs. "'She has aged very much. You'll be kind to her, I know.' "'Of course I'll be kind,' said Mary. I hope I was never unkind. She thinks so much of things now, and then she cries so often. We do all we can to prevent her from crying, because it does make her so weak. Beef tea is best, we think, and then we try to get her to sleep a good deal. Mary has come, Mamma. Here she is. The carriage has only just arrived. Mary followed Lady Susanna into the room, and the Marchioness was immediately immersed in a flood of tears. <laughs> "'Oh, darling!' she exclaimed. "'Oh, dearest! "'If anything can ever make me happy again, "'it's that you should have come back to me!' Mary kissed her mother-in-law and submitted to be kissed with a pretty grace, as though she and the old lady had always been the warmest and most affectionate friends. "'Sit down, my love. "'I've had the easy chair brought there on purpose for you. "'Susanna, get her that footstool!' Susanna, without moving a muscle of her face, brought the footstool. Now, sit down and let me look at you. I don't think she's much changed. This was very distressing to poor Mary, who, with all her desire to oblige the Marchioness, could not bring herself to sit down on the easy chair. So the poor little boy's gone, my dear. I was so sorry to hear it. Yes, of course, that was quite proper. When anybody dies, we ought to be sorry for them. I'm sure I did all I could to make things comfortable for him, didn't I, Susanna? You were quite anxious about him, Mamma. So I was, quite anxious. I've no doubt that his mother neglected him. I always thought that. But now there will be another, won't there? This was a question which the mother expectant could not answer. And in order to get over the difficulty, Susanna suggested that Mary should be allowed to go down to lunch. "'Certainly, my dear, in her condition she ought not to be kept waiting a minute. "'And mind, Susanna, she has bottled porter. "'I spoke about it before. "'She should have a pint lunch and a pint dinner.' "'I can't drink porter,' said Mary in despair. "'My dear, you ought to. You ought indeed. You must. "'I remember as well as if it were yesterday, Sir Henry telling me it was the only sure thing. "'And that was before Popinjay was born. I mean, Brotherton.' I do so hope it will be a pop and joy, my dear. This was the last word said to her as Mary was escaping from the room. She was not expected to make cloaks and skirts, but she was obliged to fight against a worse servitude even than that. She almost longed for the cloaks and skirts when day after day she was entreated to take her place in the easy chair by the couch of the Marchioness. There was a cruelty in refusing but in yielding there was a crushing misery. The Marchioness evidently thought that the future stability of the family depended on Mary's quiescence and capability for drinking beer. Very many lies were necessarily told to her by all the family. She was made to believe that Mary never got up before eleven, and the doctor who came to see herself, and to whose special care Mary was of course recommended, was induced to say that it was essential that Lady George should be in the open air three hours every day. 
you know i'm not in the least ill mother mary said to her one day since these new hopes and the necessity for such hopes had come up the marchioness had requested that she might be called mother by her daughter-in-law no my dear not ill but i remember as though it was yesterday what sir henry said to me when popinjoy was going to be born of course he was popinjoy when he was born i don't think they have any positions like sir henry now i do hope it'll be a popinjoy but that can't be mother you are forgetting the old woman thought for a while and then remembered the difficulty no not quite at once then her mind wandered again but if this isn't a bob and joy my dear and it's all in the hands of god then the next may be my three first were all girls and it was a great trouble but sir henry said the next would be a bob and joy and so it was i hope this will be a bob and joy because i might die before the next when a week of all this had been endured mary in her heart was glad that the sentence of expulsion from manor cross still stood against her husband feeling that six months of reiterated longings for a popinjoy would kill her and the possible popinjoy also then came the terrible question of immediate residence the month was nearly over and lord george was determined that he would go up to town for a few days when the time came mary begged to be taken with him but to this he would not accede alleging that his sojourn there would only be temporary till something should be settled. "'I am sure,' said Mary, "'your brother would dislike my being here worse than you.' That might be true, but the edict, as it had been pronounced, had not been against her. The Marquis had simply ordered that in the event of Lord George remaining in the house, the house and park should be advertised for letting. "'George, I think he must be mad.' said mary he's sane enough to have control of his own property if it is let why shouldn't you take it where on earth should i get the money couldn't we all do it among us he wouldn't let it to us he would allow my mother and sisters to live here for nothing and i don't think he said anything to mr knox about you but i am to be banished he must be mad mad or not i must go do do let me go with you do go to the deanery papa will make it all square by coming up to us in london your father has a right to be in the house in london said lord george with a scowl when the month was over he did go up to town and saw mr knox mr knox advised him to go back to manor cross declaring that he himself would take no further steps without further orders he had not had a line from the marquis he did not even know where the marquis was supposing however that he was in his house on the lake but he did know that the marchioness was not with him as separate application had been made to him by her ladyship for money i don't think i can do it said lord george mr knox shrugged his shoulders and again said that he saw no objection but i don't think i have a right to be in a man's house without his leave I don't think I'm justified in staying there against his will, because he's my brother. Mr. Knox could only shrug his shoulders. He remained up in town doing nothing, doubtful as to where he should go and whither he should take his wife, while she was still at Manor Cross, absolutely in the purple, but still not satisfied with her position. She was somewhat cheered at this time by a high-spirited letter from her friend Mrs. Jones, 
written from Kilcancodlam. We are all here, said Mrs. Jones, and we do so wish you were here with us. I have heard of your condition at last, and of course it would not be fit that you should be amusing yourself with wicked idle people like us, while all the future of all the Germains is, so to say, in your keeping. How very opportune that the poor boy should have gone, just as the other is coming. Mind that you are a good girl and take care of yourselves. I dare say all the Germain ladies are looking after you day and night, so that you can't misbehave very much. No more kappa-kappas for many a long day for you. We've got Lord Giblet here. It was such a task. I thought Cartrips wouldn't have brought him. Now he is as happy as the day is long, and like a tame cat in my hands. I really think he's very much in love with her, and she behaves quite prettily. I took care that green pear should come down in the middle of it, and that clenched it. The lover didn't make the least fight when Papa appeared, but submitted himself like a sheep to the shearers. I shouldn't have done it if I hadn't known that he wanted a wife, and if I hadn't been sure that she would make a good one. There are some men who never really get on their legs till they're married, and never would get married without a little help. I'm sure he'll bless me. Or would do, only he'll think after a bit that he did it all by himself. Our friend Jack is with us, behaving very well, but not quite like himself. There are two or three very pretty girls here, and he goes about among them quite like a steady old man. I got him to tell me that he'd seen you at Brotherton, and then he talked a deal of nonsense about the good you'd do when you were a marchioness. I don't see, my dear. Why, you should do more good than other people. I hope you'll be gracious to your old friends, and keep a good house, and give nice parties. Try and make other people happy. That's the goodness I believe in. I asked him why you were to be particularly good, and then he told a deal more nonsense, which I need not repeat. I hear very queer accounts about the Marquis. He behaved himself at Rutham almost like anybody else and walked into dinner like a Christian. They say that he is all alone in Italy and that he won't see her. I fancy he was more hurt in that little affair than some people will allow. Whatever it was, it served him right. Of course, I should be glad to see Lord George come to the throne. I always tell the truth, my dear, about these things. What's the use of lying? I shall be very glad to see Lord George a Marquis. And then your pop and joy will be Poppinjoy! You remember the Baroness, your Baroness? Oh, the Baroness! She absolutely asked me to let her come to Kilcancodlam. But I hate disabilities and rights, said I. She gave me to understand that that made no difference. Then I was obliged to tell her that I hadn't a bed left. Any little room would do for her. We haven't any little rooms at Kilcancodlam, said I, and then I left her. Goodbye. Mind you are good, and take care of yourself, and whatever you do, let Popinjoy have a royal godfather. Then her father came over to see her. At this time, Lord George was up in town, and when her father was announced, she felt that there was no one to help her. If none of the ladies of the family would see her father, she would never be gracious to them again. This was the turning point. She could forgive them for the old quarrel, 
She could understand that they might have found themselves bound to take their elder brother's part at first. Then they had quarrelled with her too. Now they had received her back into their favour. But she would have none of their favours, unless they would take her father with her. She was sitting at the time in that odious armchair in the old lady's room, and when Mrs. Toff brought in word that the dean was in the little drawing-room, Lady Susanna was also present. Mary jumped up immediately and knew that she was blushing. Oh, ask her down to papa, she said, and away she went. The dean was in the best of humours and was full of Brotherton news. Mr. Groshut had been appointed to the vicarage of Pugsty and would leave Brotherton within a month. I suppose it's a good living. About three hundred a year, I believe. He's been acting not quite on the square with a young lady and the bishop made him take it. Was that or nothing? The dean was quite delighted. And when Mary told him something of her troubles, how impossible she found it to drink bottled porter. He laughed and bade her be of good cheer and told her that there were good days coming. They had been there for nearly an hour together and Mary was becoming unhappy. If her father were allowed to go without some recognition from the family, she would never again be friends with those women. She was beginning to think that she never would be friends again with any of them when the door opened and Lady Sarah entered the room. The greeting was very civil on both sides. Lady Sarah could, if she pleased, be gracious, though she was always a little grand. And the Dean was quite willing to be pleased if only any effort was made to please him. Lady Sarah hoped that he would stay and dine. He would perhaps excuse the Marchioness, as she rarely now left her room. The Dean could not dine at Manor Cross on that day. And then Lady Sarah asked him to come on the Thursday following. End of chapter 56